that's what I find so fascinating about this serendipity mindset that we say, you know what, rather than seeing the unexpected as something that is about imperfection, it's about our inability to plan something, quite the opposite. You know what, it's actually our ability to see something that could be even more valuable. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, Christian Bush and I discuss the magic of serendipity and how to get more of it in your life. In the spring of 2017, on a beautiful sunny morning, I was eating breakfast at a cafe in the West Village. I was sitting outside on the sidewalk enjoying some poached eggs and a cup of coffee when I noticed, get this, Malcolm Gladwell. He was sitting a few tables away, reading, scribbling some notes, just a legendary writer enjoying a solitary breakfast. At the time, I was working on an idea, a digital platform where readers and writers could connect in powerful new ways. I couldn't help thinking that Malcolm would be a perfect collaborator. But did I really want to interrupt him with a sales pitch while he was sipping coffee, clearly trying to work in peace? So I sat there, I'm sure you've been in this place, teetering back and forth. Should I talk to him? Should I not? Well, my eggs got cold. I think about this moment a lot, actually. And the reason I think about it, the reason the memory of it still fills me with glee and a little bit of fear, too, is that it so easily could have gone either way. So what did I do? I finally walked up and said, Malcolm, sorry to interrupt, I was thinking of you. I pitched him on the idea, and you know what? He liked it. This little moment has had a bigger impact on the last couple of years of my professional life than almost anything else I can think of. With Malcolm's help, we launched the Next Big Idea Club, and we're now working every day to improve the way ideas are delivered the way readers and writers interact. That little decision resulted eventually in this podcast. If I'd fluttered a little longer, if I'd hesitated until Malcolm finished his coffee and left, then guess what? You wouldn't be listening to my voice right now. You may have heard of the butterfly effect in physics. It's the idea that in the physical world, one action, like a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil, can trigger a cascading series of effects that ultimately result in a tornado in Texas. I've always wondered, what are the butterfly effects in our own individual lives? What small haphazard decisions that we make, or others around us make, end up producing dramatic long-term effects? Christian Bush, a professor at NYU, has given this a lot more thought than most of us. It all started in high school. When Christian was 18, newly licensed and living in Heidelberg, Germany, he challenged a friend to a game of chicken. I didn't see the traffic island in the middle of the street. And so I kind of, you know, try to, to get around it. And I, I, I'm spinning around in the car and spinning and spinning. And I won't forget that, you know, when you have this kind of moment where your life is literally kind of accelerated in front of your eyes and then you, you, you have this complete feeling of powerlessness, like this complete feeling of, okay, this is it. It was one of those accidents where if things had been slightly different, it would have been game over. It left Christian shaken, as you can imagine, but it also gave him a new perspective. Christian concluded that chance plays a much larger role in our lives than most people imagine. This is important. We have to start with humility. We don't have the level of control that we think we do. If Christian is right, we should make decisions based on probability. We should live in a way that increases the possibility of chance playing in our favor. This is what Christian calls the serendipity mindset. He wrote a book about it, and we invited him to talk with us. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Christian, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Christian, I'm holding here a copy of your book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Where did the word serendipity come from and how do you define it? Yeah, it comes from an old fairy tale, actually, of a king who rules the ancient country of Serendip. 
and who became concerned that his three sons were too privileged and sheltered and unprepared for the challenge of ruling the kingdom. And so he sent them on a journey and uh, they kind of discover all these unexpected things because they had this open mind and, and always kind of were curious. And so that really leads us also to that uh, kind of idea of that serendipity really is about seeing something in the unexpected and then doing something with it and turning it into positive outcomes. And so it's very different from that blind luck, you know, this kind of just being born into a loving family or so, things that we can't influence. But it's really this kind of smart luck that's about seeing and connecting the dots and, and really doing something with it. So Christian, you have thoughtfully distilled 10 years of research and study that went into creating this book down to five ideas for the curious and busy listeners of the Next Big Idea podcast that they can apply to their lives. And I think we should just get right into it. Let's do it. We can create our own smart luck by setting ourselves up for the unexpected. We all tend to make plans and develop strategies, but in reality, our lives are often shaped by the unexpected. We then often see the unforeseen as a lucky or unlucky event that just happened to us. But when you think back to the things that truly shaped your life, perhaps meeting your co-founder at a conference or your life partner in a coffee shop, or even turning your brewery into a hand sanitizer company after a random conversation, they usually were not just about that one moment. There was an active element to it. You had to seize that moment. You had to do something with it. Imagine the situation in a coffee shop where you accidentally spill coffee over a person. I mean, happens with me all the time, given my slightly erratic hand movements. And you sense there might be some kind of connection there. But you're just apologizing and moving on. Afterwards, you might think, well, had I talked with this person, perhaps there could have been something. Perhaps that could have been that kind of coincidental meeting of that kind of person who becomes the life partner. And so often it's between capturing and missing these kinds of unexpected moments, depending on how we act on them. And that's true for companies too. When a Chinese white goods company had farmers complain that their washing machines were breaking down whenever they tried to wash their potatoes, instead of telling them to not wash their potatoes in it, they did the opposite. They said, okay, that is unexpected, but you know what? There's a lot of farmers out there and they might all benefit from this. And so that turned out to be this kind of innovative, lucky outcome that they produced. It's all about spotting and connecting the dots. It's not about the blind luck that just happens to us, like being born into a good family or so. It's about the smart luck. Christian, I get the sense reading your book and hearing you speak that you may be unusually clumsy with coffee. <laughs> Uh, you, you spill coffee on future girlfriends. You spill coffee on your laptop. I have to ask you, are you putting lids on the top of your coffee? <laughs> I, I tried that and then, you know, serendipity stopped from happening. So I, I, I put them <laughs> off again. I was going to say, I would advise against it. I think you, you should not put any <laughs> lids on your coffee because this is working really well for you. I love this detail, Christian, that when you first submitted the first draft of your book, your editor said, great job, but we need more love stories. Do, do you have your own love stories that you'd like to share? Absolutely. I feel, you know, every romantic partner I've ever met uh, has been somehow serendipitous. The situation there was I went to the publisher and, you know, they, they were excited, but they were like, look, Christian, we need more love stories. And, and I was like, well, I'm not sure I, as the then 35-year-old guy who was single, is the right person to talk about love, right? But they were like, no, 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 give us, give us a love story. And so right after that, I had a meeting scheduled with an ex-girlfriend of mine who was a very close friend of mine now. And, you know, I met her and I was like, hey, I need love stories. Can you tell me about some really cool love stories? And she just said, well, our story. And I was like, what do you mean our story? We're not together anymore. Where's the success there? Where's the positive outcome? She was like, well, you know, I mean, we, we met serendipitously in a Starbucks, right? So essentially, it, she just had arrived in London and she, she was sitting there. I was kind of working on, on something that I was writing. And, you know, we essentially... Um, kind of started a conversation, you know, one of us went to the restroom and the other one watched the, the other's laptop and kind of, you know, from there started this, this kind of relationship and, and conversation. And what, what I found beautiful about this is that essentially, you know, the way she described it was, hey, look, we gave each other a lot of emotional support. We introduced each other to wonderful people who shaped a lot of our lives. And so even if we're not together anymore now, actually, we put each other on wonderful tracks. And, you know, to me, that was a wonderful moment to A, reflect on that, yes, like love stories most of the times, you know, even Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and, and those kind of uh, examples, they're all serendipitous, right? But also, yeah, yeah. in a way, the idea of positive outcomes is not necessarily that in the moment, you know, it felt like bad luck when we broke up, but it turned out into good luck later on. And so I'm also fascinated by this kind of 
incubation time, that serendipity in the moment, it doesn't feel like good luck, but actually over time, it might still turn into it. I think it's possible that when it comes to our stories about romantic narratives, we actually celebrate and even exaggerate serendipity because we like the idea that romance is faded, that it's beyond our control. I think this is why our stories about serendipity are so often romantic stories because we celebrate serendipity in romance, but as you point out, we do not celebrate serendipity in business where the exact opposite is true, right? In, in, in business, we want to take credit for positive outcomes. Do, do you think that's possible that we basically have, that maybe romance is the one place where we fully acknowledge the role of serendipity? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic observation because that's exactly what happens, right? If it feels in those moments, we give ourselves to that romantic notion. And then to your point in business, we have this almost like an illusion of control, right? That, that even either we think we actually believe that, that we are in control or we want to portray that we are in control because we think it's all about authority and everything else. And I, I think that the, the, the example there is really how we, you know, when we get in, like when we have a job interview or so, like the way we present our CV, right? We would say, yeah, and then I wanted to do this and then I wanted to go into this industry and this and this. Yeah, but you know what? Maybe you just have this one kind of coincidental run-in with someone else who told you about another job and, and you just liked it and went for it. And so it's really this idea that a lot of times to your point, we airbrush serendipity out of our stories because either we we want to show that we always had some kind of plan or because we, we somehow have to portray some kind of sense of, of control. And, um, you know, a lot of what I've seen in, in my work happening is that a lot of times the most effective leaders, they are really able to say, you know what, I need to let go of this illusion of control that we can plan every micro step. Mm -hmm. like, I'm giving you a certain sense of direction here. So I'm showing you that you can trust me because I'm not kind of without orientation here, I, but I have a compass. I don't have an exact plan. And then at the same time, kind of, I'm really open to these unexpected things. And what, what's really happening then is we see with leaders that their employees and, and others take them more seriously because they're actually more realistic about how life actually unfolds. And because nobody believes those narratives, right? That you had everything always planned out and everything else. And that's what I find so fascinating about this serendipity mindset that we say, you know what, rather than seeing the unexpected, as something that is about imperfection. It's about our inability to plan something. Quite the opposite. You know what? It's actually our ability to see something that could be even more valuable. You know, one of my favorite studies in the book is what I think of as the Wiseman coffee shop study. Could you share that story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really about the idea that a lot of times the way we look at the world uh, in a way already kind of predefines a little bit of, of how actually life plays out. And so they took someone who self-identifies as very lucky, you know, so someone who says, good things always happen to me and so on, and someone who self-identifies as very unlucky. So someone who says, bad things always happen to me and, 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 and I'm always in accidents and so on. And they tell them, you know what, walk down the street, go into the coffee shop, order a coffee and sit down, and then we're going to have an interview. What he doesn't tell them, the, the researcher, is that there's hidden cameras across the street. There's a five pound note, so money in front of the, uh, the coffee shop. And inside the coffee shop, there's only this one chair next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a wonderful conversation, they exchange business cards, and you know, potential opportunity coming out of it, we don't know that. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, goes inside, orders the coffee, also sits next to the businessman, the other person's left, ignores the businessman, that's that. Now at the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I found money in the street. I made new friends and, you know, potential opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And I guess we all have those people in our lives, right, who face exactly the same situation, exactly the same kind of array of events, but one seems to be a little bit luckier than the other. And so that's really a bit of a fascination also how the way we frame the world already predefines quite a bit of this. It strikes me, Christian, that on a day-to-day -day basis, there is a trade-off between openness on the one hand and focus on the other. So to give an example, Einstein supposedly came up with his theory of relativity while walking to the patent office. Now, he may have walked over one or more five-pound notes <laughs> on his way. We didn't want Einstein to be looking for five-pound notes or looking to start random conversations with strangers. We wanted him to be 
sorting through this idea that he was that he was focused on. So it strikes me that this is an area where there's somewhat of a zero sum game in life between focus on kind of internal processes and productivity on the one hand and openness to serendipity on the other. How do you think about how you balance those two things? Absolutely. That's a great one. And, and I mean, you know, as someone who had to repeat a year in high school because of not understanding things such as relativity, I actually would have loved him to, <laughs> to, to, not, get, <laughs> to not get there. But, uh, but to your point, it's actually, I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because that's actually really at the core of it in terms of that question of if you have people who tend to have a lot of serendipity in life, how do you, how do you not get distracted by it, right? How do you essentially make sure that you have some kind of filter that allows to really kind of navigate towards um, those things that, that really are aligned with who we want to be. There's a couple of things we can do. One is really, I've, I've started doing a serendipity journal where essentially I'm writing down, okay, this is kind of like my core principles or the things mm. like my kind of North Star, like something that, that I feel that's what I'm aiming for. So for example, in my case over the last years, it has been, I want to kind of develop the serendipity mindset and then I want to inspire as many people as I can with this. And so when I now run into people and have a conversation, I try to, to connect every dot to that kind of theme in some way. And if something else doesn't directly connect to it, I put it on a parking lot. So essentially I write it down. I'm like, thank you so much. This is super exciting. I will get back to you as soon as I'm kind of out of the jungle with regard yeah. to the, the serendipity mindset. And I think that is, is really helpful. A second one that I found super helpful is really about um, kind of having some kind of, um, you know, in my case, it's my partner, but maybe um, other people have other kind of people around them who, with whom they can bounce off ideas, um, especially actually more reflective people are super helpful in that, right, in terms of helping to make sense out of opportunities. I've seen that a lot in co-founder teams, for example, right, where you might have a Steve Jobs type person who's constantly connecting dots and comes up with ideas. But you need a Bosniak type who says, okay, let's sit down. Let's try yeah. to figure out what is really important here, you know, and kind of helping helping make sense out of it. And so I think it's also that element of, of trying to understand complementarity and, and how can others help us filter that. Same in companies, Pixar, for example, has like brain trusts for these kind of things where informally people can, can judge on that. So it's really this kind of building in those filters that, that I feel um, helps a lot. I, I have a number of policies in my life that have made it easier for me to shift between modalities of openness to new experiences, new people, new ideas, and focus. One example is I find airplanes, Christian, to be a place where mm -hmm. the forced confinement can be an environment where I get an enormous amount done. However, I'm often curious about the person next to me. So the policy I've come up with is as soon as the captain says, we have begun our descent, I close my laptop, turn to my left or right, and say, is New York your home or are you visiting or whatever? And I start a conversation and who knows, best case, I've met some fascinating new human being. Worst case, I spend 15 minutes learning about their French poodle, but it's only 15 minutes. I have, I have an insurance policy. I think that sounds so smart also because you essentially do it in the end, right? So you, in a way, you can't get stuck if there's a conversation where you don't want to get stuck with. Right? So it's, it's, I really like that idea. Yeah. 15 minutes max. Another observation I would make is that I think a lot of people do suffer from too much focus. And there's been a, there's been a lot of um, enthusiasm around developing good habits. And of course, I have children and I'm trying to encourage them to develop good habits because habits are, are sort of algorithms for productivity, right? If you exercise first thing every morning, you crank several hours of work, whatever it is. But the problem I find is that if you run too many of these habit algorithms, you shut out serendipity. Yeah, I have like a couple of routines around how in the morning, which is actually something I've, I've learned from um, Paul Graham, who has this amazing thing around maker versus manager schedule. Yes. And it's yes. really this idea that you want to have some kind of protected space that literally is just about routines and like that is the non-negotiable. But then also yep. you want to have that kind of open mind space, right? And in my case, for example, what I'm doing is in the morning, I'm on a maker schedule where I protect a couple of hours of my time where I'm just kind of like creative and I, 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 I don't check emails. I don't take calls and anything else because that's where I don't want to have serendipity. That's where I just literally want to have productivity 
because every call is not only the five minutes of the call, but it's the half an hour getting back into the work again and yes. then feeling frustrated that we didn't, didn't get enough done and then the whole day is essentially done, right? Versus if you know you did yeah. three hours, then the rest of the day is so relaxed, right? Because you're like, yeah, I got the, the important stuff done already. Now everything else can be a bit more open-minded. And so I actually highly recommend Paul Graham's post around makeovers mm-hmm. manager schedule because yep. it, I feel like it completely changed my life in terms of, um, you know, because I feel everyone's always busy, but only very few people are actually productive, right? And so it's yeah. really about saying, how do I do both? I actually am on the exact same schedule you are, Christian, I, which I recommend. <laughs> so Christian, I think we're ready for idea number two. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. We can see serendipity triggers. Imagine being at a virtual conference and meeting a new person. Many of us might go on autopilot and ask the dreaded, so what do you do question? This puts the other person into a box that is very hard to get out of. Positioning ourselves for smart luck means asking more open-ended questions like, what is your state of mind? Or what did you find most interesting about X, Y, Z? Such questions open up conversations that might lead to intriguing and often serendipitous outcomes. We can also set serendipity hooks and cast our net wide. This is about creating memorable or engaging talking points to open ourselves to serendipity. When someone asks entrepreneur Ollie Barrett, for example, the dreaded what do you do question, he will answer something along the lines of, I love connecting people, I set up a company in the education sector, recently started thinking about philosophy, but what I really enjoy doing is playing the piano. What he did here is he gave us four hooks that allow us to pick or choose the hook that relates to our own life. And so it could be something like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I just started hosting matinees, you should join us for a session. The point is, it's all about allowing others to connect the dots for us. I love this example. And, and it's, it, it really is one of the most practical things one can do because so many of us are, we all really are to some degree on autopilot in, in far too many of our conversations, right? Where we're just sort of having the same exchanges. How are you? Fine. What do you do? How's the weather? Whatever, whatever it is. you know. That, and so often we're just missing the opportunity to connect with people. How else can we improve on our conversations? Well, one thing that I found always useful is to always when listening to someone, especially when it's a meeting where we think, oh my God, this this will be dreadful, right? Always thinking about how does every sentence connect to something or someone I know or something I might be interested in or something like a friend might be interested in. And in every moment, in every situation, in every conversation, there can be something in there that we can make meaningful by relating it to something else. Literally, we can make every conversation meaningful by doing this. Yes, yes, yes. The framing I've always enjoyed is that the onus is on me to figure out what I can learn from this person who's boring me to tears next to me at the dinner party. It, it's my job to figure that out. And, and if I don't, it's my failure to some degree. But you know, it's, but a broader comment I would make is that there's so many books about sort of tactics around you know, sort of conversation and socializing and so on. But, but really, I think the most important single thing is just to develop a genuine interest in other human beings, right? I mean, I know, I know from your book that you and I share an allergy to the term networking. Right. And if I'm invited to an event that's like, oh, well, from 5 to 6 p.m., we have networking cocktails. It just causes me to want to run out the door because I just think like effectively what you've done is you've primed everyone to be focused on this transactional value that you might get from another human being. And I've always found that if you if you begin with just a genuine curiosity in, in, in other human beings, that then everything else follows, right? I mean, that, that genuine curiosity is, is what you want to drive the, the process. Exactly. And that was one of the starting points of, so we set up a community around uh, 12 years ago called Sandbox Network. And it's been all about identifying young people around the world who push boundaries in different fields and then bring them together and, and build kind of like um, a community around them so, so that they can build meaningful relationships. And one of the things we found really interesting when you build a community like this was really around saying, how do we essentially get people away from thinking transactionally, right? How do yeah. we get them away from when they come to an event that they introduce themselves by I'm running XYZ companies versus coming to an event, uh, kind of an informal dinner or so and saying, what's on your mind? What's your challenge at the moment? And what's fascinating then actually is when you get into a more kind of meaningful relationship mode versus a transactional mode, you actually identify the real common denominators, right? It might be that someone says, you know, my key challenge at the moment is I'm going through this deep journey through finding my identity because I just 
like, you know, gave up my company and now I'm trying to do something else. And I always used to be the founder of XYZ company. And who am I now that I don't, that I'm not this founder anymore. And, and so really kind of identity kind of questions and things like this. And everyone can relate to this idea of transition, right? Every father, every yeah. mother can relate to that the teenager leaves the house at some point, which is a very similar experience to like, you know, a company potentially kind of, you know, like, like fading away from you. And so it's really these kind of ideas of saying, once we ask people like about these kind of deeper questions, mm. that's where they identify the real common denominators. And then in the long run, you know, they will make interesting stuff together happen anyways, mm. but then based on this deep friendship rather than based on directly going for transactions where you don't really build trust. So you probably won't do anything interesting together anyways. It strikes me that that's part of a broader collective realization that we kind of all have permission now to mix personal and business elements in our in our conversations and i think that results in more interesting business and maybe more effective absolutely and and you know this this old saying that in a way war and crises is what brings people together right like it's kind of this idea of like we have a common enemy and the common mm -hmm. enemy yeah, that has yeah. been out there was covid right like everyone in the yes. company can relate to the idea that because of COVID, I feel a bit less kind of excited than I'm usually am or, or things like that. And so if I can connect with people based on this common denominator saying, hey, look, what is something that we share as an emotional experience mm -hmm. that brings us together, right? And I think yeah. that is exactly where, I mean, I felt, you know, now that I'm thinking more about kids with my partner, like I've started talking with, 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 with my colleagues about, you know, the challenges of parenting and how it feels like to do X, Y, Z. And that has brought us very closely together because it's not about just talking about like, you know, it's great to have a kid or not, but it's about the underlying challenges and the, the kind of undercurrents, which then lead us to other things as well. And so to your point, I think um, there is a lot in there in terms of um, that, that we all have an excuse at the moment to bring in these kind of questions in a moderated way as well. But it's exactly to your point, like finding that balance and, and doing it in a way that is authentic to, um, to, to oneness is probably key. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, can, I can tell you, Christian, that, that between myself and the other producers on this show, we have quite a bit of collective parenting experience. So when the time comes, just let us know. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful challenge uh, in front of you. Uh, hopefully things come together. Um, but opportunities for, for this kind of um, communication that mixes both personal and, and, and business can be implemented structurally. I love this example of random coffee trials. Yeah, that's really about the idea. And I think even more so at the moment with COVID, right? Where like traditionally we had these water cooler moments where, you know, you run into someone uh, when you grab a coffee during work or something. And that was, of course, always really important also for more junior employees, right? Because you essentially, every day you could bump into the boss of your boss and then maybe something unexpectedly opportunity uh, like arises. And you don't have that at the moment when you're stuck at home. And, and, um, and so the idea here really is to say, you know what, let's match people randomly within an organization who don't know each other yet or don't know each other well yet. It's really a lot about this kind of idea that at the end of the day, we need these water cooler moments, both for serendipity, but also just for this kind of sense of belonging that I'm there with other people and we're, 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 you know, we're in this together. And so I think like there's, there's a lot of hidden benefits to that kind of methodology. Our team at the Next Big Idea Club of, of nine extraordinary people, we have put in place a plan where every week we're matched up in pairs of two to have a 20-minute phone conversation and, and, and just catch up you know, personally or and maybe maybe connect on business initiatives as well. But it's been uh, it's been it's been really helpful. Speaking of coffee breaks, it's time for us to take one. When we come back, Christian tells us to embrace the squiggle. He also tells us what the heck that means. If you're interested in the story behind the business headlines, check out Big Technology Podcast, my weekly show that features in-depth interviews with CEOs, researchers, and reformers in business and technology. Hi, I'm Alex Kantrowitz. I'm a longtime journalist, CNBC contributor, and the host of the show. I empty my Rolodex every Wednesday to bring you awesome episodes, so go check out Big Technology Podcast. It's available on all podcast apps. We'd love to have you as a listener. Welcome back to The Next Big Idea. Christian has already told us how to create smart luck and seed serendipity triggers. 
Now in his third big idea, he says we should stop pretending we have everything under control. Instead of pretending we have everything mapped out, what we really need to do is a good compass and a readiness for the unexpected. We often treat life as linear and controllable, even though it is filled with twists and turns. We often feel the pressure to convey that we have it everything under control, but you know, we often are not in control. And so often only if we let go of the illusion that we can control everything, serendipity actually becomes possible. Research shows that inspiring leaders often balance a sense of direction with an appreciation of the unknown. Former Unilever CEO Paul Polman, for example, takes on a large number of projects that have come to him unexpectedly, but he's very intentional about how they fit his purpose to help people who can't help themselves. Having a sense of direction, like some sort of principle or North Star or a deeper curiosity, allows us to deal with the unexpected and to filter those things that could be a distraction. Instead of pretending that we had it all figured out from the beginning and that serendipity is about a loss of control, cultivating serendipity actually is about gaining serendipity and gaining control over uncertainty. Then we can all be more truthful to how things actually happen. As Harvard's Leif Sharp would say, life tends to be a squiggle rather than a straight line, even if we narrate it as if it was a straight line. A serendipity journal can help us keep track and open our eyes to it. Most people, indeed, are often just winging. I, I love the Leith Sharp conclusion that she basically says, right, that, that we start with this original plan, which is a straight line to our destination. If you dig into what really happens, it ends up being, as you say, this, this circuitous squiggly line of, uh, of trying to figure it out. But then retroactively, we tell an official story, which is a linear line, right? And, and so you might ask, well, what's wrong with that? Why not allow ourselves to fantasize that it was a, a straight line all along? Well, the problem is having built a few startup businesses myself, it can result in people feeling overly dejected when the journey is circuitous, when the journey is squiggly, because we don't acknowledge that that's how it works, right? That's how it happens. And so I think, I think being rigorous about telling ourselves more accurate stories about what the journey looks like is, is important. Exactly. And, and that's where it gets really interesting, I think, in terms of that I feel, especially in organizations, right, but also in families and other groups, a lot of times, especially when things don't work out, yeah. We just try to hide them away, right? We try to say that wasn't part of the narrative. And the problem, of course, then is also we don't really learn from each other, right? Because we, we talk about the things that work, but the really important things are the things that didn't work. And so I'm actually a huge fan of the project funeral, so the, yes. the kind of post-mortem exercise, because that's really a lot about saying, you know what? Life is not a straight line. Life will be, there will be unexpected things. There will be things we can't know, but that's okay as long as we share what we learn from it. So I've been interacting with a company that's uh, had this window glass, you know, so the idea would, uh, was that the light wouldn't reflect. And so amazing technology, but they, they underestimated that not that many people would, would pay a lot of money for it. And so, you know, they were like, okay, let's, let's lay it to rest and let's, let's put it away. And the person who was responsible for it presented that in front of uh, project managers from other divisions saying, hey, look, we learned that next time we'll, we'll take more care of, of market demand X, Y, Z. Now, someone in the audience goes like, oh my God, have you considered if we would take that technology into a solar device, how amazing that could be in terms of energy absorption? And that is how serendipitously part of their solar division emerged. Why? Because they essentially developed a ritual, a practice that made it more likely that people actually would talk about the things that didn't work, that they actually would put some dots out there and then other people could connect the dots for it. And so I think in, in a way that legitimizes also the squiggle, right? Yes. I, I love product funerals. And that's one of several takeaways I've, I've gotten from your book that we will implement in our business. Now, um, when we think about the way we navigate through the world, Christian, whether, whether by map or by compass, I know having uh, read studiously your book that I'm, we're supposed to use compasses more so than maps. <laughs> I'm reminded that some environments are more serendipity rich than others. And so how do you think about the importance of, of, of places as we think about it? I mean, that's a great one, especially at the moment, right? That like we were completely taken away from those places that 
some of us might have identified as those that actually have a lot of serendipity happen, right? Like, I don't know, co-working spaces or those yeah. places where, where we have this aggregation of, of serendipity. It's interesting because to me, that is really all about communities, right? In terms of that, in a way, communities can lift our base level of serendipity. So this kind of, if, if you think about the potential serendipity that mm. you could have every day, if you're like in a well-functioning community or in a well-functioning company that, that forms a community around you, then actually serendipity happens much more often than if not. It's, it's almost like a, a collective, um, you developed a collective kind of social opportunity space that 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 is there. And, and, and that's actually a major passion of mine also to think about both how do you create these environments that have more serendipity happen so uh, effective communities where you essentially kind of develop a high amount of trust so that people have an incentive to connect dots and have the motivation to connect dots but at the same time are diverse enough so that you can actually link some kind of new things together um, and at the same time then also the question of the social inequality component in that, that some yeah. people don't have access to that. And, yes. and so really that deeper question around how do we also build those kind of um, serendipity fields or, or mm -hmm. societal opportunity spaces for people who might not have the, the kind of access we have, you know, how do we create these kind of opportunity spaces beyond just the kind of, you know, tangible like skills and and, and what, what a job or a, 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 an education actually offers you? Yep, yep. You know, following up a little further on cities, it strikes me that cities are serendipity machines, right? I, I mean, big cities are like serendipity reactors. A city like New York, I mean, of course, we all have friends who say, why on earth do you live there? It's loud and expensive and, you know, there's not much vegetation and it smells funny in the summer. Um, but there's this magic to it, and the magic is just this serendipity in the air, and it can be measured, right? There's data behind this. When you double employment density, the jobs per square mile, the number of patents per capita increases by 20%, which is stunning, right? I mean, there's a direct mathematical relationship between increasing density and a greater creative output in an environment. And so I think when we think about um, when young people ask me for advice, which by the way is not as often as I would like, if you're a young person, please feel free to ask me for advice. I start with, you know, figure out what city contains the greatest concentration of people who share your interests. And then after that, what neighborhood, what company, what community, et cetera. I, I love that. I love that because I feel it's so much about that question of who do you surround yourself with, right? If you have the choice that you can live in in a in a in a setting where you have people around you who help you connect dots, who help you do these kind of things, that is a huge accelerator mm -hmm. of serendipity. And so, to exactly your point, I think being really conscious of this in terms of where do I want to base myself physically, right? I see a lot of people at the moment who create uh, intentional communities, right, physically. So they say, okay, great, like let's get 20 people to live together in a big house and we quarantine together and that is kind of like our new city hub in a way right um, where essentially you you have that kind of like culmination of that happen and I think that is the same for city planning right so I've, I've had a lot of conversations with with city planners when you think about things like smart cities like one thing you don't want to um, um, plan out of smart cities of course is that you know you can have all the efficiency in the world but if you program serendipity out of it because everything is too smart or mm -hmm. or, or you, you don't think enough about how you can have those collisions that really change the world um, then you have a problem and so I, I think to exactly your point like being really conscious about what is the kind of physical setup that you that you can run into the right ideas and the right people mm -hmm. and then also at the same time thinking more broadly about community itself and, and how to design that around oneself um, I I think that you know if you ask people what had the biggest in, like impact on their lives it is the few people that are that are around them because it's not only i mean it's a serendipity question but it's also a motivation question it's an energy question it's so many questions related to that yeah absolutely absolutely right well so to close up uh idea number three instead of pretending we have everything mapped out what we really need is a good compass what guides that compass is your north star as you say and i'd, I'd love to ask you christian what is your north star that's a great question. I, I feel it's been changing a little bit over time in terms of how it manifests. I think so since, you know, I had an experience early on in life that made me realize how quickly life can be over a car crash. And um, that put me on an intense search for meaning. And, and, and I've, I realized, wow, what I really enjoy doing is connecting people, connecting ideas. You know, in a way, I've, I've always been wondering over the last kind of since that happened over the last now, what is it? 
17, 19 years, um, what is the most effective platform to make that happen, to, to, to enable those kind of connections that really initiate meaningful change at scale? And so that has been via community building and has been via kind of building different types of incubators. It has been via content. Um, but I feel that like there's this constant kind of question at the back of my mind of, okay, is this really what could be or could there be more and and I also to to the detriment of of you know at some point and that's probably for a red wine conversation at some point but this this idea of that I feel I've seen something in me that I've seen in others as well who are very driven by their passion that um, we, we've been very kind of driven by a search for meaning and mm. by this kind of feeling meaningful and less by kind of this idea of contentness which obviously then a lot mm. of times translates yeah. into happiness kind of being in the moment being very kind of anchored and so i feel like i've always been fascinated by this idea that i feel my north star is about this kind of how can i be part of developing impactful platforms that 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 connect ideas connect people and 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 really make stuff happen and the book now was essentially a beautiful excuse to to put that all together um, and at the same time then wondering how would it be to take a bit more time to anchor a bit more, to feel more quote-unquote content? Um, but then also always saying, if I'm too content, I don't feel the discomfort to actually make more things happen. And so it's yes, this interesting yes, kind of tension yes. from time to time. Yeah, we're, we're wired to be discontent, and yet uh, we're not always happy about it. And so would you say that you didn't have a North Star before the car crash? Was that near-death experience critical to placing a North Star for you? It was in the sense that, you know, when I was a kid, I had a lot of energy and I channeled it usually into very questionable pursuits, you know, like, I mean, I, I tested so many boundaries and so many things. And, you know, I had to repeat a year in high school. I was kicked out of school. Like there were a lot of kind of things that essentially I didn't have a real clear sense of direction of, of what to do with all that energy. But that kind of car accident, I, I will never forget the policeman who came to the scene and it was like, oh, wow, he's still alive, you know, and, and asking yourself all these questions like, if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have cared? Was it all worth it? And like all these weird questions, mm. I think that definitely kind of triggered a lot of this kind of idea of, okay, let me find something that next time if I run in front of a car, it was worth it. And so it's really kind of this journey that that, that now like resulted mm. in giving me some kind of North Star. And, you know, since then I've talked with a lot of people who had similar experiences in their life where it is, the starting point is like a really dire situation. And then from there, there is this kind of journey. And now I'm very grateful for having had that that moment. Um, but again, it could have uh, played out very differently, I, I assume. So this, I think, brings us to idea number four. We need to focus on opportunity rather than limitation. Once we look at how to make the best out of whatever is at hand, the most creative and serendipitous solutions emerge. That's when breweries use their alcohol to make hand sanitizers during COVID-19, design companies start producing face masks, or artists who had their performance canceled start capturing new audiences by teaching an instrument online. One of my favorite organizations that does this is Reconstruction Living Labs, an organization in the Cape Flats who developed a low-income methodology that allows people to develop their own skills, companies, and platforms. The team's core question when going into a new resource-scarce community is, what is already here? Taking whatever is at hand, looking at it afresh, and recombining it with other objects, skills, people, or ideas frequently leads them to have more unimagined ideas and, and insights and really a profound change in outlook. Then, for example, you look at an abandoned garage and you see a potential training center, or you see a former drug addict who might be a potential teacher. And so, in a way, what were liabilities become assets or potential contributors, and the situation is being reframed from one of passivity and powerlessness to one of activity and opportunity. But of course, our starting positions when it comes to potential serendipity are extremely different, and we all need to work also on tackling structural inequalities, and that goes really hand in hand with working on our mindsets. You know, what's so interesting about a moment like COVID-19, as you point out, is that there are some forms of the unexpected that hit all of us at once, right, at the same time. And it enables a kind of large-scale case study of how people respond to the same situation. Now, of course, it must be said that the impact of COVID-19 has been much more severe for certain business sectors and for certain communities around the world. But it's also true that moments like this can be celebrations of human creativity and I love all these examples that you, you talk about the breweries making hand sanitizer. And of course, you, you also go on to describe all these wonderful inadvertent inventions, right, that, that, that were the result of accident. 
Viagra, penicillin, Play-Doh, Post-it notes. Which are your favorites among these? I mean, I, I, I think it's the case that in the case of Viagra, they were researching treatments for a heart condition, an angina. Yeah, Viagra is one of my absolute favorites because it's, it's such a beautiful example of something that could have been really awkward. So essentially, they gave medication to people who had angina and they realized, the researchers, that there was some kind of like movement happening in, in the trouser department of, of some or of, of the male participants. And what would we usually do? We'd say, oh, my God, that is so embarrassing. Uh, so let's either ignore it or let's try to cure that side effect, right? Let's get rid of that side effect. Uh, they did the opposite. They said, you know what? That is unexpected. But there might be a lot of men in the world who might have a similar problem in that department or have a problem in that department. So why don't we focus on this and make it happen? And that's how Viagra evolved. And that's how a lot of these kind of inventions and innovations evolve, where essentially you were looking for something particular, uh, but then something completely different comes up and you're like, oh, actually, that might be more interesting. I love to think about what the researchers were writing on their researcher notepads. Maybe it was motion in the trouser department. <laughs> 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 What's interesting is these are not just hand-picked examples, but this is actually how a large portion of innovation happens, right? I think you say in the book that around 50% of inventions are a result of serendipitous occurrences. And in management, roughly 50% of what happens is due to unexplained variance. Am I getting that right? Exactly. And that's the fascinating thing, right? We airbrush it out of our histories because... If I'm the inventor, I want to say, yes, like I wanted to come up with this and I came up with it versus like, oh, I just stumbled over it. And the interesting thing always then is, of course, when we d dig deeper, that a lot of these actually, even if they are being told as a planning story, they, they a lot of times are an emergent mm -hmm. story and, and take like, for example, how Honda came up with like some of their like smaller motorbikes in the US, you know, it's essentially people were commenting on the small Hondas of employees because they said, you know what, like that's actually pretty cool. Why would we only buy these big ones that you're selling us? Why can't we have the same small ones that you're driving? And you know, some people made that a serendipity story, others made that a planning story, right. but it's always yeah. interesting to see how, you know, it, there's incentives to airbrush it out of story, but also sometimes to your point, love stories, there's an incentive to brush it into it. And so it's, it's always interesting to, to see those kind of uh, conversations. But I think one way maybe to your point, to, to distinguish those that I always find interesting is is really looking into things like counterfactuals. So things such as what could have happened and, and how did it unfold? And we can really see when in the process it broke down, when we missed that serendipity versus when it when it when it when it happened. And you know, we can all do that in our own lives, right? That's why where I think the serendipity journal again comes in to say, let's be realistic when we trace back our moments and then try to see the pattern. And that can help us then to have even more of it or to maybe strengthen our muscle a little bit in some areas and, and so on. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to the show. As I was preparing to talk with Christian Bush about serendipity, I happened to have a conversation with my 10-year-old son, Rye, about the long sibering debate between optimists and pessimists. Is the glass half full? Or is it half empty? Here's what Rai said. Well, I think that it matters on your intention. Because if you're filling up a cup, we have a cup right here. Uh-huh. Oh, very good, yeah. Your intention is to make it full. So at the halfway point, it is halfway full. Mm. But if you're drinking it, 
it's technically halfway empty once you reach the halfway point because you're again your intention is to drink <laughs> until it's empty thanks rye i never thought about it that way the essential question is what is your objective to fill the glass or to empty it when you encounter a setback are you inclined to complain about it or find new opportunities in it That's the distinction Wiseman observed between people who describe themselves as lucky or unlucky. It's a difference in framing, and it's a powerful difference. I shared this anecdote with Christian. It sounds like you, your son is extremely bright um, to, to think that way. Um, but but, but it, it's fascinating because it's, it's really something where um, there's a lot of experiments around this, right? In terms of how we, the way we look at the world um, essentially frames a lot of it. And it's fascinating for a lot of reasons, right? One being that... Um, we ourselves connect dots differently if we look at the world like this, but also others have more incentive, right, to connect the dots for us if we go through the world with a more glass half full mindset. And I feel like the interesting thing about serendipity is that so many times it is about teamwork, right? It's about someone else connecting the dots for us and, and they need some kind of incentive a lot of times. And if we're the glass half empty person, uh, there's, there's a lot of times less um, incentive also for people to do that for us. So it's both individual factors, but also um, what other people can, can actually do for us. And actually, our labs has this wonderful thing where they have a hype person where uh, when they are in meetings or so, there's always one person who backs the other person up and who says, this is such an interesting idea. Thank you so much for raising this. And so it's a fascinating thing because what does it, what it does is, especially for people who are less kind of mm. um, naturally out there and, yeah. and who kind of, uh, it's just a wonderful way to make them feel more confident, which uh, of course, a lot of these things are about. Interesting. Uh, well, Christian, I think we may be ready for idea number five. We need to make accidents meaningful and create meaningful accidents. The way we deal with the unexpected often defines who we are. Unexpected moments and crises such as COVID-19 bring out the best and the worst in people. Some turn breweries into hand sanitizer companies, others fall. But people will remember how you acted during these moments. When Best Buy faced a hurricane in Puerto Rico, for example, and they had to close down some of their shops, they worked with the local community and employees and even hired private planes to fly out their employees. It was aligned with their values. They had to justify it to their investors, but in a way for them, it was really an opportunity to show who they really are. It was the right thing to do, but in the long run, it also increased employee and customer loyalty. Long story short, serendipity can be a profound source of those moments that make life meaningful and turn the unexpected from a potential threat into a source of opportunity. Then every missed flight or walk in the park, of course, from six feet away, becomes an opportunity for love, for meeting an investor, making a new friend, or forging a new interest. This is a reminder that we do not have to have it all figured out, but that a serendipity mindset will allow us to navigate the future. Then the answer to what am I doing with my life could be something like I'm setting myself up for serendipity. I have a story, Christian, that I think you'll enjoy. When I started my first business, Nerve.com, it was meant to be a smart magazine about sex and culture. It was kind of a rakish new zine in the early years of, of the internet. And at the time, Wired Magazine was like the hottest thing in the world because it had just launched and it was chronicling this emerging internet and digital revolution. And Louis Rossetto was the founder of Wired Magazine and was kind of a hero of mine at the time. So I reached out to him. I managed to get a breakfast with him. I told him all about you know, my plans to build this new digital media company. And he took an interest, and but he demurred when I invited him to, to be one of our early investors, he said, sorry, I'm not investing right now. I followed up and I said, Lewis, your name and reputation would be so useful to us as a, as a fledgling company that though our, normally our minimum is $25,000, we would accept $1,000 of an investment from you just as a symbolic gesture to express to the community that you have an interest in what we're doing. And he said, well, I can't turn that down. Here's a check for $1,000. Well, two months later, he had been reading all these newspaper articles about how Louis Rossetto and several other people I got through similar tactics had invested in this fledgling nerve.com. And so I got in the mail a letter that said, dear Rufus, I've enclosed a check for $24,000. People keep asking me how much money I invested in your company because you've gotten so much press. And I just felt that I, I was embarrassed to say I've only invested a thousand. So here, here's $24,000. And so I think if you could make the hurdle as low as possible to get engagement through serendipity, make it easy for people. Don't ask for too much. 
you know, you can get more engagement perhaps. I love this example because it's so much about saying, you know what, nobody's out of reach, right? And especially the most senior people a lot of times are actually, I've, I've found that an interesting paradox. And I don't know if you, if you found that similar, but the most senior people sometimes are easier to engage than the, the a little bit less senior because essentially they've already made it versus the less senior one still is on the rat race. So I found it fascinating, you know, to think about how do you essentially then, especially when you have people who are from less privileged backgrounds, how can they make use of this? So for example, some of the kids I've been working with who come out of less privileged uh, environments, one thing we said was, you know what? Next time there's a public event somewhere and you have an extremely inspirational speaker, you will be the one asking the first question. And the way you do that is when the moderator asks, so who has a question, you stand up energetically so that they can't ignore you. And then you ask a question. The way you do that is to say, thank you so very much for this wonderful point. And so essentially making it all about the speaker to your point of flattery, right? That that is really the kind of most important thing that it's about the person. And then as someone who just went through X, Y, Z, so seeding something about us, like setting some kind of hook there, whatever we feel comfortable sharing, whatever is relevant in that, in that setting. And then I wanted to ask you for advice about X, Y, Z. And so what usually happens then is that after the talk, there's three or four people coming to the person who asked the question saying, my God, such a coincidence. My brother recently went through XYZ. I want to put you in touch. Such a coincidence. We just thought about XYZ. Why don't we put you in touch with this? The point here being that now we turned an audience of the other person into actually a receptive place where we can seed something. And so I'm a big fan actually also of this, like how do we scale up these kind of questions, especially among those people who might not necessarily have that kind of social capital or so to, to naturally be able to, um, to do that. I mean, what I take away from your book, among other things, is that really a combination of sincerity, originality, and volume of outreach to people in the world who can help us is critical. Uh, it seems to me that part of your core thesis, Christian, is that life is to some degree a numbers game, right? And, and we know this to be true in art, right? Like, like one has to write a lot to write beautifully. One has to paint a lot to, to make a beautiful painting. And one has to engage a lot to create the kind of business serendipity that one wants. Does that resonate for you? Absolutely. And, and I think that's kind of really at the core of it to say in every moment, there can be something that potentially could connect the dots. And, and I think where it gets really interesting then is exactly this kind of idea of how can we train ourselves to connect the dots more and differently? How can we also develop the tenacity and the grit to really do something with it? I've actually, you know, the more I've been indulging in the question of how we can cultivate serendipity, the more also I've, I've really kind of dived deeper into this question of how do we essentially empower people uh, including ourselves to to feel worthy for it mm, to feel yeah. to feel that you know we 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 are ready for it because a lot of times i think you know we might see an opportunity we might see something but we might not act on it because we don't feel worthy or ready and i think you know i will not forget for example I asked uh, a gentleman who I really kind of, you know, I, I, he had a wonderful energy and, and fantastic person. I asked him, you know, do you have a lot of serendipity in your life? And he said, well, never before I was 25, a lot of times after 25. And, and I was like, well, what do you think changed? And he said, you know, he came out of a family where the idea was people like us like work and service. Mm -hmm. So he had this limitation in his, his mind. And I've seen that with myself sometimes in situations where I think there's a certain understanding of self where we put our own biases and limitations on us in addition to potential societal limitations that, that in addition come on top of it. And again, I think what's really important here and, 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 and I think Rufus, we, we had that conversation also a little bit around how we can never blame anyone for bad luck yeah. and we can never blame anyone for, um, for, you know, not raising out of XYZ situation because again, there's so much complexity. There's so many kind of barriers that are objectively holding us back. And then I think the thing that, that we are really curious about is what are the things that hold us back across any kind of situation, across any context that, that we ourselves that are subjectively there, that, that we create ourselves. And so I think that's, again, where the mindset goes hand in hand with the kind of societal constraints that we have to work on as well. Everything from racial to, um, to, to income and other inequalities that, that are objectively there and that we really have to work on because, I mean, that, that makes the biggest, like, differentiator, right, to how we can have serendipity, like the kind of objective barriers that are a lot of times there. Absolutely. And, you know, one final thought I have is that when I think of serendipity, I think of joy. 
And I think when I think of stories in my own life that have been the most serendipitous, some led to wonderful outcomes and others were just joyful in and of themselves. And I, I think that what I would hope for for people is that if we can embrace the joy of serendipitous encounters uh, for both for people on both sides of them, uh, that that uh, and that any good fortune that comes out of it is a bonus. Well, that's that strikes me as a healthy attitude. 100%. You know, it, it, it reminds me actually of a colleague uh, back in London when I was when I was still working in London, uh, who told me, Christian, I love the work you're doing, but I don't need serendipity in my life because I have everything. Like, why would I need this? And I'm like, okay, let's make a deal. Like, do a couple of these things. Ask questions slightly differently. Do exercise differently. You know, just small things. And then let's 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 discuss again in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks later, he comes and he's like, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. Uh, I feel that is the most beautiful thing about serendipity. That it's about potentiality, being that in terms of joy, in terms of meaning, in terms of all these different things. And and in a way, once we build that muscle for having more of it, it's 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 just the most kind of joyful experience that that I feel you can have. And you know, that's one of the main motivations for for doing that work actually. Well, Christian, thank you so much for your time and. Um I, I will. I have resolved to no longer put lids on my coffee cups, and I uh, look forward to uh, a serendipitous future. And maybe we'll have an opportunity to get a coffee one of these days. I'd love to. Thank you. Remember that digital platform for readers and writers that I pitched to Malcolm in the middle of his serene breakfast at the top of the show. Well, three years later, it has blossomed into a vibrant community. Check it out at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Join now and get three months of membership absolutely free. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Special thanks to Christian Bush. You can grab a copy of The Serendipity Mindset at your favorite local bookstore. And while you're there, why not seed a few serendipity triggers? Here at the Next Big Idea Club, we make smart luck every week thanks to our crack team. Our executive serendipiters are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. The music is by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week. <laughs>